Well, good morning, everybody. So, um, yeah, it did give me just a tremendous amount of joy loading up my truck the other day, and I took over 300 pounds, or almost 300 pounds of the food that you all brought for Catonsville Emergency Assistance, so just praise God for that. Um, and also just praise God for uh, this morning being joined by John and Camille Kennebrew. Let's just thank for them. That was great. Um, would you join me in a moment of prayer? Father, Advent is a season of anticipation. And I just wonder what it is that my friends um, are anticipating this morning. What are the things that um, they brought with them today to worship? The burdens, the baggage, the questions, um, perhaps some darkness or perhaps some joy, some excitement, um, some happiness. Father, sometimes I think that um, the Advent season uh, can be a time where we, where we know what the answer is. We know that the answer is coming in, in Jesus, um, but may this season... Before, right before, on the eve before we celebrate this nativity, this glorious reality of the incarnation, may, may you whisper in our ears maybe what the questions are. May you whisper in our ear what we should be anticipating and thinking about how we can be reorienting our lives back to your grace and your truth and for the glory of your kingdom. Father, I just ask that um, uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you and edifying to my friends here this morning. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So have you ever noticed that some things just have the ability to hit a particular chord with you the way that other things don't? Maybe it's a song or a movie or a book. Um, every year it seems like there's new like uh, Christmas classics. You know, I've read books that, that I feel have changed my life, and then I get all excited when I'm done, and I hand it to somebody because I want them to have the same experience that I just did, and then a few weeks later, they hand it back to me, and they say, oh, thanks, it was pretty good. Pretty good? Did you not see how this book contained hints at understanding the mysteries of the universe? Then again, some things just hit, uh, strike a chord with an awful lot of people. Take Star Wars, for instance. Simple plot, simple characters, incredible special effects, and 42 years later, it's one of the biggest franchises of all time, celebrating another big release this weekend. For some reason, there was just something about that story that hit a nerve in our culture. Of course, it's not just movies. The thing is, throughout church history, we've seen actually the same sort of excitement around particular Bible verses. It shouldn't surprise us that there are just some verses of the Bible that seem to hold a supernatural amount of weight. And perhaps one of the best examples of this is John 3.16, which occurs in the midst of a conversation that Jesus is having with a member of the Jewish governing body called the Sanhedrin. This man named Nicodemus quietly comes to see Jesus at night and begins with, the, uh, with, the pra with praise. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher 
come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus responds by answering him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is confused by this, and he and Jesus have this brief exchange about how things have been brewing in the story of Israel since before the time of Moses and are now about to be made manifest in his mission. And in the midst of his response to Nicodemus, Jesus utters the words, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's not the only thing that Jesus says. It's not even the first or the last thing that Jesus says. But that verse, for some reason, has resonated with the church and even the wider culture in a way that drew attention to the gospel and for some has summed up the entire biblical narrative. And it does seem to hit a lot of essential points. The context of the verse helps us see that it speaks of Yahweh, Israel's God who deeply loves the world in which he created. It implies the sacrifice of giving his son for the sake of that world and points in the direction of eternity, which is intimately connected to belief in this son. It also implies that apart from this hope in God's son, humanity is set to perish. If that's not a difficult pill to swallow, it probably should be. The point is that in Jesus there is life, and apart from Jesus there is only death. While the verse isn't typically connected to the Christmas story, It probably should be. After all, isn't the true meaning of Christmas the truth that God sent his son out of pure love to a broken world in order to reclaim that world for himself? Today we're in the final week of Advent. We've been following the revised common lectionary, and and this week... um, They have us looking at another verse, which we might say has had a monumental impact on how we understand exactly how God gave his son. It's Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. We're going to spend time there today, so if you'd like to open your Bibles to Isaiah 7, I'd invite you to do that. Verse 14, out of context for a moment, says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, obviously, the reason why we're looking at that verse today is because Christian traditions have rightly applied it to the nativity, which we'll celebrate in a few days. Ultimately, the verse does find its fulfillment in the virgin birth, but but there's a principle of biblical interpretation here that is crucial if we're going to understand it with maturity. And basically that principle is, don't get ahead of the text. I remember getting my hand slapped, figuratively, on several occasions in seminary, because I would often read Old Testament passages like this one and immediately look to make them about Jesus. The thing is, you don't have to worry. Yes, it's ultimately about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. But It also meant something for the context of the day. 
Sometimes our habit is to take a verse out of context and kind of force it into our own biblical interpretation and leave no room for understanding how that prophecy has matured over time. We learn this lesson all the time with food. If you want to take uh, that turkey and have it be nice and moist, you're going to have to brine that sucker. And brining takes time. The same principle applies to marinades and wines and meats. You, You get the point. On the other hand, you don't want to wait too long. Biblical prophecy, like food, matures with time, but when it does reach maturity, we got to pay attention. Paul hints at this in Galatians when he says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, as daughters. When the fullness of time had come. So that then drives us to ask three questions about Isaiah 7.14. Why was it important for Isaiah in in his day? Why was it important in Jesus' day? And why is it important now? So first of all, why was it important in Isaiah's day? The first line of Isaiah 7 says that this episode takes place in the days of Ahaz the king of Judah who reigned over 200 years after the death of King David. At the time, the Holy Land was split into two regions. The northern region of Israel, which in this passage is also referred to as Ephraim, and the southern region of Judah, which contained the capital city of Jerusalem. To the west of Israel and Judah, there was the threat of the Assyrian Empire the Iron Age superpower of the day who were attempting to follow the one command of their god, Azur, expand the frontiers of Assyria so that Asher finally rules over all. They started in the 10th century BC and did a darn good job of it for several hundred years. In in an attempt to stave off Assyrian invaders, the northern region, Israel, it aligned itself with its northern neighbor, Syria, and their king, Rezin. So now Israel and Syria join forces and are going to try to force Judah's king Ahaz to aid in the fight. Isaiah tells us that when Ahaz and the people of Judah heard that Israel was in league with Syria, their hearts shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So God sends Isaiah to speak with Ahaz and to remind him that God is still God and that his faith in Yahweh should should overcome his fear. Isaiah says in verse 4, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. You're worried about an invasion from Syria and Israel? It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Meaning, don't get so worked up over the threat of these so-called attackers. They're only human. And you can't put your trust in kings who could die at any time. Instead, you should put your trust in in your one true king, your God. And Isaiah tells him in verse 9, he says, if you are not firm in faith, 
you're not firm at all. Now, when Isaiah uses the word faith, he's not just talking about intellectual assent. He's not just talking about believing in God. He's talking about believing God, trusting God, and putting that trust into practice. Walter Brueggemann says, Ahaz is called to live in an alternative world governed by this faithful God and by none other. Habitation in this alternative world, moreover, has immediate and concrete implications for the practice of life. The dynasty is being summoned back to its radical roots of faith and trust and union with its holy God. So Isaiah goes to King Ahaz and he says, man, I know you're worried about these bullies, but don't forget who's on your side. The problem is that Ahaz is so scared that he's actually prepared to go to the Assyrians for help. See, what he wants to do, what King Ahaz wants to do is he wants to make an alliance. This is God's holy people. God's people set apart, blessed to be a blessing, all of that. This is King Ahaz of the house of David saying, wanting to make an alliance with a big bully in order to get help from the smaller bullies. And like Grima Wormtongue in The Lord of the Rings, that is always the most pathetic character in the story. And Ahaz was a pathetic character in this story. Scripture tells us in 2 Kings that he even sacrificed his own son as an offering. And then he sent a bribe of silver and gold from the temple. From the temple. The temple was the intersection of heaven and earth. The temple was where worship happened. He sent a bribe of silver and gold from the temple to the king of Assyria. And he got what he wanted before it was all said and done. Judah fell, though, to Assyria as well, long after Ahaz was dead. Before he died, though, God sent Isaiah to Ahaz again. And maybe this was the same episode as the first encounter. Maybe it was sometime later. We we don't really know. But, But this time, God takes the lead in the conversation, picking up in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Sheol was basically the Hebrew way of referring to the pit of death. And Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Suddenly Ahaz is a man of virtue all of a sudden. Isaiah steps in at this point and makes an ominous move. Isaiah says in verse 13, he says, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? You can hear Isaiah's frustration, not to mention God's. But did you notice that when he spoke, he directed his comment to the house of David? Ahaz might have been the temporary steward of the house of David, but there was much more at stake than the geopolitics of 8th century BC. God had promised that David's line would be established forever and that his kingdom would be a forever kingdom. 
Trusting Yahweh and placing Judah's faith in the one who was truly king was something that Ahaz just wasn't prepared to do. Isaiah says this back and forth helps no one. Certainly not the people you're supposed to be helping. You're giving me a headache and what's worse, you're giving God a headache. And then Isaiah says it. You know what? Talking about signs... Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a side. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, and when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, probably around age two, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. That little blurt out, the, the king of Assyria, was basically Isaiah declaring the instrument of judgment on the land. God's going to use Assyria in order to execute judgment on Israel, Judah, and the rest of the region. Ultimately, in time, the world would be overtaken by one superpower after another. Right now, it's the Assyrians, the next it's the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, eventually the Roman Empire, then Disney and Amazon Prime. Isaiah's reference to the virgin and the child that would be born of her didn't actually imply a virgin birth. It just meant that the woman would be of marriageable age and that she would have a child. The word translated virgin uh, wasn't actually translated virgin until the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible uh, several hundred years later. At the time of Isaiah, it was actually just a reference to how God was going to move the house of David along according to his plans and not be intimidated by anyone. There's a tone of exhaustion in Isaiah's text. He's wearied, and so is God, over this whole king problem. You see, this is one of the most important things for us to think about every Christmas, every Advent. You see, Israel was never supposed to have a normal king because God was their king. God was supposed to be their king. During the period of Judges, we're told that everyone just did what was right in their own eye rather than follow the law that was handed down by God Then they decided they wanted to be like everybody else. They wanted to be like the other nations, which was a slap in the face of God because the whole point of their existence was that they were supposed to be a nation set apart. King Ahaz was the 14th king of Jerusalem, and while some kings were better than others, none of them were substitutes for the holy vision of God being in perfect union relationship with his people. God may, or David may have been a man after God's own heart, but he was still just a man, sinful and frail to the realities of the world in which he was born. And so far, so for Isaiah, a vision was given of a new king, one who would establish that forever kingdom that was promised through David's line. And if he was a part of David's line, if he was going to truly be a part of David's life line, that meant that he had to be a man, but to return to the original part of God with us, that king would need to be more than a man. 
he would need to be Emmanuel. So Matthew begins his gospel account with genealogy. To us, it it reads as kind of the most boring section of the book. But to an Israelite, it actually would have been far more exciting because it said right from the start that Jesus was not only the son of David, but also the son of Abraham. David was promised uh, that a forever kingdom would be established through his line, and Abraham, centuries earlier, was promised that through that line, the whole world would be blessed. So Matthew is establishing right off the bat, at the beginning of his gospel, um, that what the work that God was doing in Jesus would stretch back all the way to the start of the Abrahamic covenant. N.T. Wright explains it this way. He says, Matthew's opening, so apparently boring to a modern Western reader, would have been electrifying to a first century Jew. He traces Jesus' genealogy in three stages, Abraham to David, David to the exile, and the exile to Jesus, with 14 generations in each. In other words, there have been six sevens so far. And now comes the goal, the perfection, the seventh seven, the aim of it all. The genealogy summarizes Israel's history, which climaxes in King Jesus. Matthew then tells us of this man named Joseph, who was betrothed to a young woman named Mary. Before their marriage, Mary was found to be pregnant. Now, let's not forget that this would have broken Joseph's heart. Nothing supernatural had happened yet, so it would have been completely understandable that Joseph would have assumed that Mary had found another man. But because he was a kind man who didn't want Mary to experience any shame, Matthew tells us that Joseph sought to divorce her quietly. Think of the character that that took. Being a patriarchal society, Joseph would have been within his rights to publicly shame and humiliate Mary, but instead he chose a higher road. He chose kindness He chose mercy, even when he didn't have to. Don't run past this. Think of the generations that came before. That list of names of people who told the story of Israel through injustice and greed and the violence and corruption. The Hebrew Bible is full of stories of people who repaid immorality with immorality. They repaid hate with just more hate. That wasn't always the case, of course, but our passage from Isaiah shows that something better was needed to put things right. And the first story we hear in what would become the first book of the New Testament is this man named Joseph who repaid what could have been interpreted as evil with kindness mercy. Of course, it wasn't evil at all. In fact, it was the opposite of evil, the exact opposite of evil, as far away from evil as you could possibly get. Not only did Joseph act with compassion, he also acted with patience, not overreacting, but with quiet consideration, he slept on his dilemma. 
And in a dream, an angel visits him and says to him, Joseph, and listen what he calls him, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived within her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. He will save his people from their sins. Matthew adds that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Jesus is God with us. Not just God for them. Not just God for, for Israel. Not just God for, um, for the people of the first century. But he's, he's God with, with us. Us here in 21st century America. Maryland, Baltimore, Catonsville. Us here at New Hope Community Church. Jesus isn't just for the religious people. And he certainly isn't just for those who have all of the answers. He is our healing Lord sent here for a time such as this to restore us back to union with our Heavenly Father. As the angel said to Joseph, Jesus has been sent here to save his people from their sins. The thing about sin is that it harms one of the things that God loves most, us. So, God so loved us that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, should not taste death, but have eternal life. Or maybe a different translation could be the eternal kind of life the abundant life, the life of resurrection and redemption and reconciliation. That's what Jesus wants for us. What do we do with that? Do we continue in this line of sin, greed, corruption, and envy that we've inherited that's marked so much of our generations that's come before us? And like King Ahaz, look to trust in just a bigger, better bully to help with these smaller ones. To look for idols that will kind of overtake our other idols. To look for bigger sins that will kind of mask our smaller sins or what we perceive as smaller sins. Do we just get caught up in the snowball of human sinfulness and frailty? Or do we follow Joseph's lead? And in the face of wonder and mystery, in the face of, of anticipation of that God's going to put the world right in the face of wonder and mystery, declare that this inheritance of sin stops here and now. To be a husband who embraces kindness and mercy, to be a father who stands up sacrificially for his son, to be a child of God who knows what it means to trust in his heavenly father so that he can be here on earth what he was meant to be. I hope that this Christmas, on the eve of this new decade, 
that each of us are doing business with the truth, that change, redemption, reconciliation, and righteousness do not happen by our own power, though. Yes, we have the, 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 the invitation to live a life of mercy and kindness, but it doesn't come from our own power. They all happen because God took on flesh lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death, and showed us what real power on the cross, showed us what real power looks like. That doesn't happen without a trip to Bethlehem. That doesn't happen without a baby in a manger. That doesn't happen without Christmas. Let me pray for us. Father, we know that um, whatever courage, strength, righteousness, goodness can come from us and our hands and our feet, they come from you. You are the one that was righteous. You are the one that put on flesh, lived that sinless life, died that sinner's death, went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins and then invited us into a life of resurrection, an eternal life. Father, help us to know that that reality, that invitation isn't something that we're welcomed into at some point in our future when we die. We're invited to that now. We're invited to live eternal life now. What Christmas means for us is that you have stepped into the mess that we've made. But instead of turning your back on us and leaving us to our own devices, you stepped into the mess. You walked towards the messes, put on flesh, and paid the price to reunite us, to make us have union with you again, to invite us into that grace and that truth. I just pray for my friends here today that whatever burdens, or whatever struggles, whatever pains they're feeling right now, may they look to you. May they look nowhere else but you. Seek your peace, your truth, your light this holiday season. And it's in the most holy name of Jesus Christ that I pray all of these things. Amen.